Good morning, and welcome to Burning Hearts, a Bible study for atheists, agnostics, and for unbelievers, for people of all faiths, and for people of no faith. We have been studying the Gospel of St. Matthew. Now, the word gospel means good news, and we don't know too much about this man named Matthew. We just simply know that he was a tax collector, that he was an outcast in his own time, and that Jesus called him to be one of his disciples. And he has left a written record for us of the life and times of Jesus of Nazareth. We are studying chapter 3 of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, since it's a rather uh, short chapter, just about 17 verses, I'll read most of it to you without interruption. It introduces us to in my mind, a wild, hairy man, a prophet, a man who straddled the ancient world of Judaism and the new Christian world that was arising. Matthew chapter 3. In due course, John the Baptist appeared. He preached in the wilderness of Judea, and this was his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. This was, the, this was the man the prophet Isaiah spoke of when he said, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare a way for the Lord, make his path straight. This man John wore a garment made of camel hair with a leather belt round his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole Jordan district made their way to him. And as they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, they confessed their sins. But when he saw a number of Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to fly from the retribution that is coming? But if you are repentant, produce the appropriate fruit, and do not presume to tell yourselves, We have Abraham for our father, because I tell you, God can raise children for Abraham from these stones. Even now, the axe is laid to the roots of the trees, so that any tree which fails to produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown in the fire. I baptize you in water for repentance, but the one who follows me is more powerful than I am, and I am not fit to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn in a fire that will never go out. Now we'll stop right there and try and take a look at this man, John the Baptist. He seems to, be, to have been one of the greatest men that ever lived. He appeared preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Many people would say this area was down near the Dead Sea, that the area was so hot, for instance, that when you uh, walked on the rocks, they seemed hollow. And he appeared, and this was his message, okay? Now, one, a one-line message. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. Now, what does all this mean? Repent. 
for the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. The French have a word um, for, uh, I think, it's je pense, I think. And we have the English word penitentiary. Now, what happens in a penitentiary? Ideally, what happens is that a man or woman who has committed some crime and lived a criminal life is incarcerated. And hopefully, while they're in the penitentiary, they think about the way they have lived. They think about it in silence. And they repent. They think about it again. Now, it's not just thinking about it, but hopefully, while they're in, in prison, they resolve and are determined to live a completely different life, a life free of crime. So when John the Baptist arrives on the scene and he says to us, repent, he is asking us to completely change the way we live, especially if it is a sinful way, to think about our lives and to change the way we live. I have a little prayer here uh, that would kind of sum up repentance in many ways. It says, Forgive me my sins, O Lord, forgive me my sins, the sins of my youth, the sins of my age, the sins of my soul, the sins of my body, my idle sins, my serious voluntary sins, the sins I know, the sins I have concealed so long and which are now hidden from my memory. I am truly sorry for every sin, deadly and venial, for all the sins of my childhood up to the present hour. I know my sins have wounded thy tender heart, O my Saviour. Let me be freed from the bonds of evil through the most bitter passion of my Redeemer. O my Jesus, forget and forgive what I have been. Amen. Now that sums up part of what repentance is about. It's about a deep sorrow for sin, but that's not enough. You can't go out and commit the same sins over and over and over again. It also involves a determination with the help of God to completely change the way you live. All that is implied in the message of John the Baptist. Repent. Think again. Now, why should we think again? Because the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. The kingdom of God is close at hand. God is entering into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And then Matthew shows us that the appearance of John the Baptist in the wilderness of Judea was prophesied for hundreds of years before it happened. This John the Baptist was the man the prophet Isaiah spoke of when he said, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare a way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, you know, when the state is putting in a new highway, it has to sometimes level down uh, the mountains and fill in the valleys to make a smooth road for the highway, for the traffic to go through from one city to another. Well, using this ancient image, that's what John the Baptist is doing. He's preparing a highway for the Lord. He is making his path straight. But the Lord is not coming... Um, physically along the highway. It's the highway into the human heart and into the human mind. And leveling the hills and filling in the valleys implies getting rid of all that is sinful, of all that is not holy in our lives. 
Now, this man, John, wore a garment made of camel hair with a leather belt round his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. He reminds you of the ancient prophets in the Hebrew Bible. The, the ancient prophets were very confrontative men. They confronted people. Like, for instance, the prophet Ezekiel was told, confront Jerusalem with the record of her filthy crimes. Um, the prophet Nathan confronted David uh, with his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Bathsheba's husband. And so John the Baptist confronts the people of his day and asks them to prepare the way for the Lord by repenting. Now, he was such a powerful preacher that Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole Jordan district made their way out to him. And as they were baptized by him in the River Jordan, they confessed their sins. Now we're introduced to baptism. There are many types of baptism. There's baptism in the Holy Spirit. There's the baptism of blood. There's the baptism of desire. There's the baptism of repentance that John the Baptist was practicing. And then there's the baptism that brings you into the Christian community different types of baptism. So John then is practicing a baptism of repentance. The word baptize means to immerse. Now let's look at an image here that might be helpful to you. At Queen of Peace Church, where I am the pastor by the grace of God, in the vestibule of the church there is a baptismal pool. There are seven steps down into it. Now, the seven steps represent the seven deadly sins. Pride, covetousness, lust, anger, envy, gluttony, and sloth. So just visualize yourself at this moment if um, I challenged you to repent and be baptized. Now, visualize yourself walking down into the baptismal pool and the water now rises up to your waist or mid-chest. Um, and the symbolism here of walking down the steps is you've die, you're dying to sin. Supposing then that as the minister of baptism, I were to push you under the water and I immerse you in the waters of death. Now, just imagine that I held you down there for a long time. Well, the very obvious uh, thing that would happen to you is that you would drown, you would die. And that's what baptism is. It's a dying. It's a dying to a previous way of life, a dying to sin. Now, supposing at the last moment before you died, I took my hands off your shoulders and let go, you would rise up with great force out of the baptismal font, hands probably in the air, gasping for breath, <gasps> and the new life. You would, you would die with Christ to all that is sinful, and you would rise up with Christ to newness of life. Now, in the Hebrew scriptures, baptism was foreshadowed many times by signs and by symbols. For instance, let us go back to the time of Noah. At the time of Noah, the Lord God looked down upon the face of the earth, and he saw that the thoughts in man's heart fashioned nothing but wickedness all day long. And God regretted having made man. And God said, I will rid the earth of my own creation, and I will destroy everything that has breath in its nose. 
and the waters of the great flood rose up upon the earth and everything on the earth was destroyed, everything with breath in its nose, all except for Noah and his family who escaped in the ark. Now, let's look at this great story of Noah's Ark. What's it saying to us? It's saying that the waters of the great flood made an end of sin and a new beginning of goodness. And so, when somebody is baptized then, again, look what's happening. The waters of baptism are washing away their sins, and then they are entering into the church, just as Noah and his family and the animals entered into the ark. So, the Noah's ancient ark was a symbol of the church. Now, here's another image of baptism from the Hebrew scriptures. You know well, or you should at this stage, that the great Jewish Messiah, uh, Moses, went down into Egypt land, and he said to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh, as you know, was very, very stubborn, he didn't let the people of God go, but eventually, anyway, after much plague and much uh, persecution, if you like, by God, uh, Pharaoh, who is a symbol of evil and the symbol of the devil, uh, lets the people go. And Moses then leads them out to the Red Sea. And all of a sudden, Pharaoh has changed his mind and he wants to bring back the Hebrew slaves. So God says to Moses, stretch your hand uh, over, stretch your staff over the waters of the sea. And the sea, as you know, stood up like a wall on either side. And the people of God passed through the Red Sea on dry land. Now, Pharaoh and his armies uh, followed them down into the sea. But, Pharaoh, or, but Moses lifted his hand over the sea again, and the waters of the Red Sea drowned Pharaoh and his chariots and charioteers in the depths of the sea, and the people of God escaped into the Sinai Desert. And again, you see what's happening here with the symbol of uh, water, that water made an end of the enemies of God and allowed the people of God to escape into the desert. There's also baptisms by fire, too, uh, talked about in the Hebrew scripture. If you remember at the time that uh, God was approaching the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah that had been given over completely to the sin of homosexuality. Now, evil has no rights as far as God is concerned. One has no right to kill. A child in the womb, one has no right to sin. And people can shout as long as they want to that they should have reproductive rights or gay rights. But these things are not acceptable in the mind of God. So God is approaching the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy them. And then Abraham, who knows of this, begins to intercede, as later on Jesus will intercede. And he says to God, will the Lord of the universe not be just? Do you intend to slaughter the evil and the good at the same time? What happens, he says, if there are 50 decent people in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? Will you spare the city? And God said, for the sake of the 50, I will spare the city. And Abraham kept arguing, and he said, what happens if there's 40 or 30 or 20 or 10 people? And God said, I will spare the city. But it didn't happen. There wasn't even uh, 10 just people in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So again, God takes 
Lot and his family out of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and then he rains down fire and brimstone in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And again you see there's the baptism this time by fire, and fire made an end of the evil, and there is uh, the, and the escape of the people of God in the person of Lot and his family. So this great notion of baptism then runs through the whole scriptures and it's very simply understood as uh, dying to what is evil and rising up to new life. And that's what John the Baptist is asking here, that he's asking that the people of his time would die to what is sinful and that they would prepare themselves for the coming of Messiah, the coming of the kingdom of God. Now this was no easy prophet because when a number of the people came out to him, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were the rulers of the people coming for baptism, he, he was tough. He called them a brood of vipers. You can imagine, for instance, me as a priest and some of my associates coming to see John the Baptist and he says, brood of vipers, brood of snakes, snakes that live under the rocks. Who warned you to fly from the retribution that is coming? You know, uh, you see, we're all nice and clean on the outside and, and we wear our vestments and we look good and holy sometimes, you know. But John the Baptist is saying to us, it's not enough to be clean on the outside. You must be clean on the inside. You remember that time um, where Jesus uh, said to the same Pharisees and Sadducees, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of dead men's bones and corruption. He compared them to whited sepulchres, like white tombstones that look lovely and shine in the sun, but they stand guard over rotting corpses and bones and he's saying the same to a lot of religious people that you're all nice and clean on the outside and you look good but what I'm looking for is a true repentance and that you have to produce much fruit and don't say you know like the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees that we have Abraham for our father or somebody says, well I'm a Catholic or I'm a Baptist or I'm a Methodist that doesn't mean anything unless you are living your faith and producing the good fruit. So John the Baptist then uh, spoke of himself as somebody who was preparing the way for the Lord, and it is a baptism of repentance. But he talks then that one is coming after him, one who is much more powerful than he is. And John the Baptist said, I am not fit to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn in a fire that will never go out. So John the Baptist said, There's one coming after me. He's greater than I. And this one will judge the living and the dead. This one will judge each man and each woman um, when they die. And also he will judge the whole world at the end of time. And who is this one that's coming after him? Well, then we find out in verse 13, Then Jesus appeared. He came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. John tried to dissuade him. It is I who need baptism from you, he said, and yet you come to me. But Jesus replied, Leave it like this for the time being. 
it is fitting that we should in this way do all that righteousness demands. At this, John gave in to him. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he came up from the water, and suddenly the heavens opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove and coming down on him, and a voice spoke from heaven, This is my Son, the Beloved, my favor rests on him. Now what are we to make of this? John is giving a baptism of repentance, but Jesus has committed no sin. So we have to look a little bit deeper here. Jesus is leaving behind his hidden life. For 30 years, Jesus was hidden away as an ordinary, everyday working man in Nazareth. Now that's all over with. And now he's entering into his public ministry. Again, if you can look deeply into this, um, you know, for many, many years, the whole Jewish nation was hidden in bondage and slavery and hard labor in Egypt. And they come out to the waters of the Red Sea into the Sinai Desert. Now here is Jesus who was hidden away, living uh, the life of a working man for most of his life. And now he's emerging into his public ministry. And so he goes through a ritual bath to leave behind his previous life and to begin his public ministry. And then to show you who this Jesus is, as soon as Jesus was baptized, as soon as he was immersed and left the old way of life behind, he came up from the water and suddenly the heavens opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice spoke from heaven, This is my Son, the Beloved, my favor rests on him. Now, just as the people of God uh, were the Beloved, and God's favor rests on them, Jesus too is Israel. And so God speaks and said, This is my Son, the Beloved, my favor rests on him. Now, that's chapter 3 of Matthew. So what's all this got to do with us? Well, to bring us into the Christian community, we too are called on to repent and be baptized. Now, why should we repent? For a number of reasons. We are born slave to, slaves to sin. We are born with a tendency to evil. The church calls it original sin. And each one makes original sin personal by his or her own sin. And so we make, if you like, a covenant with Satan. And Jesus comes and he says to Satan, let my people go. And if you are willing to accept Jesus' way, then you repent and are baptized. You go down into the waters of baptism, uh, leave your sins behind, and as you come up out of the waters of baptism, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. God gives you his Holy Spirit, his grace, to help you to be faithful to, your, to the Christian way of life. Now, baptism is not a one-shot deal in the sense that you have to continually practice your baptism throughout your lifetime. Let me give you an example. Supposing you and I are walking into a store and the person in front of us drops a $100 bill. Now, straight away, our baptism uh, will take effect. Uh, if we practice our baptism, you and I would say to the person ahead of us, excuse me, sir or ma'am, uh, you dropped your money. Uh, 
At this stage we would be dying to the evil which would be the sin and we would be coming alive to the right thing to do which is to give the money back. If on the other hand we both decided to deny our baptism and we said say nothing and we stood on the money until the person was well out of sight and then we took it ourselves and we split it 50-50. At this stage we have denied our baptism. We have uh, said yes to what is evil and no to what is good. So many people listening to this broadcast uh, I know are baptized, um, but are you living your baptism day in and day out? One of the most dramatic moments in the program Roots uh, by Alex Haley is the eight-day ceremony when Omoro, the father of the child, gives his newborn son, Kunta Kinte, his name, and the child becomes a member of the tribe. In the culture of Western Africa, the name given a child is both a gift and a challenge. Haley describes the naming rite. Omoro, the father, lifted the infant, and as all watched, whispered three times into his son's ear the name he had chosen for him. It was the first time the name had ever been spoken as the child's name, for Omoro's people felt that each human being should be the first to know who he was. That night the father completed the ceremony. Out under the moon and the stars, alone with his son that, that eight night, Omoro completed the naming ritual, carrying little Kunta Kinte in his strong arms, he walked to the edge of the village, lifted his baby up with his face to the heavens and said softly, Behold, the only thing greater than yourself. Now, the same can be said of you when you are baptized, that God is the only thing greater than yourself, and Jesus is even greater than all creation, and baptism makes us one with Jesus. Baptism into Jesus makes us a new creation. But again, I must remind you, you have to live it. It's not enough to walk around saying, I've been baptized and I'm saved. You have to live it. An example, California police and the courts have discovered that the tattoos on teenagers are often more than a cosmetic decoration. A few years ago, a juvenile court judge in California observed that a large number of the teenagers appearing before him had tattoos, tattoos on the hands, fingers, and faces. The tattoos, he learned, identified the bearer as a member of some particular gang and frequently as a user of a particular drug. Many of these tattoos were self-inflicted by youths who were desperate to belong. The judge also discovered that teenagers with visible tattoos were virtually excommunicated from the job market since potential employers equated the tattoos with crimes and incompetency and refused to hire the youth. The judge asked the Los Angeles County Medical Association if there might be among its members a plastic surgeon who, at no charge, would remove the tattoos from juvenile delinquents. Dr. Carl Stein, a well-known Los Angeles plastic surgeon, was the first to volunteer. Since 1981, Dr. Stein 
has turned around the lives of hundreds of his young patients through surgically removing the tattoos by excision, abrasion, laser, and virtually every other method known to man. Now, if you are baptized, your baptism is your tattoo, indeliably imprinted, identifying you as a disciple of Jesus. Would your neighbors see this in your daily life? If you are put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence against you to find you guilty? My name is Father Patrick J. O'Doherty. Shalom.